0: Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Sounds like something you'd hear from Shakespeare, but actually was written by an early 19th century Scottish author, Sir Walter Scott. The quote is from his epic poem, Marmion, a tale of flodden field. It's a historical romance in verse published in 1808 that tells the tale of how one of Henry VIII's courtiers, Lord Marmion, pursues a wealthy heiress. Clara de Clare. In order to remove her fiancé, Sir Ralph de Wilton, Lord Marmion forges a letter implicating him in treason. He is assisted by his mistress, Constance de Beverly, a perjured nun who hopes to gain his affections. De Wilton claims the right to defend his honor in combat, but is defeated by Lord Marmion and is forced to flee abroad. In order to escape, Marmion, Clara, takes refuge in a convent rather than to endure his attentions. Lord Marmion abandons Constance, who is condemned to death, but not before she gives documents to the Abbess, proving de Wilton's innocence. In the end, De Wilton is able to prove his innocence, given armor and reinstated to the order of knighthood. Marmion is killed in the Battle of Flodden Field before De Wilton can get justice, but by fighting in the battle with distinction, he regains his honor his estates, and he marries Clara. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive is an aphorism. An aphorism is a pithy observation that contains a general truth. It uses just a few words to describe one's life experience so perfectly and so true that it enters into the English language and lasts forever. Some other aphorisms you may recognize are, in fact, you can finish this for me. If it ain't broke, Don't cry over. Pride goeth. Actions speak. The early bird. And Alfred Lord Tennyson's Tis Better to Have Loved and Lost. These aphorisms take on immortal status because they are true, and we live them out every single day. In the case of Oh What a Tangled Web We Weave, it says everything we need to know about the perils of lying and deceiving other people. When we lie and deceive, we begin a domino effect of complications and consequences that eventually can run out of control. One lie leads to a second then to a, thir- a, a third and so on and so on, etc. and et cetera. Now I've assumed we've all lied and deceived during our lifetime, right? Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it was a parent. And that's where my personal example comes this morning. In fourth grade, I failed math one quarter. Now, there were structures in place for my parents to know how I was doing. And one of these was when you failed a quiz, you had to get a parent to sign the paper and take it back to their teacher, to the teacher. Well, my parents were very surprised when I received a failing grade on my report card and they called to talk to the teacher about it. I don't exactly remember what started the cycle of deception but I'm sure it had to do with not wanting to get in trouble with my parents. So when I received the first failing quiz, instead of taking it home and having one of my parents sign it, I signed it and returned it. My parents none the wiser. When I received the second failing quiz paper, I did the same thing, and so on and so on. This deception got easier and went on for the entire quarter, amounting to 10 to 12 failing quiz papers signed by my mother, and returned to the teacher. My father's signature was way too hard, more like a doctor. Oh, what a tangled web I weaved when first I practiced to deceive. If I would have taken the first failing quiz home to my parents had gotten their help to better understand the subject, I would have saved a lot of consternation, many months of being grounded, and the pain in my backside that I got from the spanking that I got. Maybe you're recollecting your own tangled web at the moment. and I tell you my story, and I invite you to remember yours for two reasons. One, we're just like the people in the Bible. We're imperfect, flawed human beings. And two, it proves that God's grace that was sufficient for them is also sufficient for us. And he can and will still use us the same way that he used them. So this morning we're going to study a family who, over the years, has become what we might call dysfunctional. The parents play favorites and the children take advantage of each other, and it's going to come to a head in our scripture this morning, where all four parties are trying to take advantage of and are deceiving one another. We would think that with all the tangling of webs going on, there's no way that God's plan for the world could be accomplished through them. But of course we'd be wrong because God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And most importantly, he's sovereign. He's sovereign. And his will and plan will be accomplished no matter the lies and deceptions that human beings put in its way. That brings us to our big idea this morning that God's plans will be accomplished despite our lies and deceptions. Now, aren't you glad that God is so powerful that his plans and will are not kept from being accomplished because of our interference, our sin, and our deception? I mean, I know I'm extremely grateful that the lies and deceptions I I perpetrated could not derail God's plan for my life. Before we dig into God's word for us this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us. You would open up our hearts and minds to what you want us to learn. Use this passage to teach us, to rebuke us, and to correct us where needed, and to train us in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first point this morning is Isaac and Esau. And we're going to be in Genesis 27, verses 1 to 4. This is what God's word says. Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. Then Isaac said, Behold, now I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare a delicious meal for me such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. So Isaac is now an old man and he's physically blind. The phrase his eyes were dim also has the meaning of spiritual blindness. And we see that Isaac thought he was close to death. So he sent for his eldest son, Esau, so he could bless him before he died. To prepare for the giving of the blessing, Isaac commands Esau to get his quiver and bow and go out to the fields and hunt, kill, and prepare the kind of delicious meal that he loved. The phrase, such as I love, suggests Isaac was in bondage to, to his appetite. Genesis 25, 28 reminds us that Isaac had a taste for wild game and he loved Esau because he was the hunter and the man of the open country. Same verse says that Rebekah loved Jacob, who was a quiet man and stayed among the tents. We see very early on that both Isaac and Rebekah seemed to play favorites with their children. These preferences were the beginning of the downfall of this family. And Isaac states he wants Esau to prepare this delicious meal that he loves so that his soul may bless him. The use of soul expressed how strong Isaac's desire was to bless Esau it would be like the passing on of a lifetime of blessing so now there are significant observations we can make in these four verses one Isaac is ruled by his stomach he loved wild game therefore he loved Esau who could hunt, kill and prepare it the way that he liked it's interesting that when Abraham was preparing for death he sent his servant to Mesopotamia to get a wife for Isaac And Isaac, when he was preparing to die, wanted a feast. Two were told that Isaac felt he was close to death. Now Isaac actually lived, some commentaries say, at least 25 more years. Some say 40. So he was not on his deathbed. And we see other biblical leaders, such as Moses, in Deuteronomy 31, being warned by God when they were about to die. So Isaac stating that he doesn't know the day of his death would probably seem disingenuous, especially to the first hearers. Third, we see deception here on the part of Isaac and Esau. Most commentators agree that Isaac most assuredly knew about Rebekah's oracle from God, that the elder would serve the younger. And or he knew that Esau had sold his birthright to Jacob for the bowl of red stew. The birthright and the blessing normally went together So by planning to give this blessing to Esau, he was actually trying to deceive and circumvent the will of God. And Esau was also trying to deceive because he knew that he had sold the birthright to Jacob. By accepting the blessing, he was gonna break his oath. Also, Esau had really disqualified himself by marrying Canaanite women, something that Isaac was willing to turn a blind eye to, pun intended. Okay. Most telling, though, is the fact that Isaac didn't call the entire family to the occasion. Whenever the father's blessing was given to the eldest child, he also gave the other children their blessing at the same time. These blessings were like our last will and testament today and needed to be witnessed. You'll see a picture of a will. At the bottom, there's three witnesses of it. Isaac, by neglecting to call Jacob in order to bless him as well, and by not calling any witnesses to the event, shows that he was trying to deceive Jacob and Rebekah. And in the end, by going through with blessing Esau, he was trying to deceive God as well, which reminds us of our big idea this morning. God's plans will be accomplished, despite our lies and deceptions. Our second point this morning is Rebekah and Jacob. and That's found in Genesis 27, verses five to 17. Again, follow along as I read. This is what God's word says. Now, Rebecca was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a delicious meal for me, so that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. So now, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there, so that I may prepare them as a delicious meal for your father, such as he loves. That you shall bring it to your father that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. But Jacob said to his mother, Rebekah, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will touch me. Then I will be like a deceiver in his sight and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, "'Your curse be on me, my son. "'Only obey my voice and go. "'Get the goats for me.' So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made a delicious meal such as his father loved. Then Rebecca took the best garments of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. And she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave the delicious meal and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. First thing we notice is Rebecca's eavesdropping, which reminds us, that, reminds us of her mother-in-law, Sarah. In Genesis 18, Sarah overheard the Lord telling Abraham she was going to have a child Now, Isaac probably had this conversation with Esau in his tent, and Rebecca must have been on the lookout so she could intervene. This meant that she had an inkling that Isaac would try to pull a fast one. There's no telling how many times in the past Rebecca may have listened in outside Isaac's tent in order to hear and be ready for this particular conversation. When Esau left to go to the open country, Rebecca came and got Jacob. And we notice that she quoted Isaac's words to Esau because this was to establish her truthfulness to Jacob in what was about to take place. Notice she identified Isaac and Esau as your father and your brother and Jacob as my son. Again, reminding us of the family dysfunction. Now, she leaves out a part. She leaves out the part about Isaac blessing Esau with all his soul downplaying the strength of his desire and resolved to bless him. And she adds a part. She adds the part about in the Lord's presence, which emphasized the importance and the religious significance of what was about to take place. Rebecca needs Jacob to see the urgency of putting her plan into motion. He needs to do it immediately. She's persistent. She makes it clear that he has to pay close attention to her voice and her commands. Seemingly, it is Rebecca who's the mastermind here. We notice Rebecca's deception as she puts her plan into motion. She must have been formulating her plan for quite a while because it was elaborate, and it needed to be done quickly for it to be successful. She commands Jacob to get two young goats from the flock so she can prepare the meal for Jacob to take to his father, But Jacob's concerned that his father will notice that he's not Esau. If his father touches his smooth skin, it would give him away. It's interesting. He did not want to appear to be deceiving his father and bring down a curse on himself instead of a blessing. But this is not Jacob rebuking his mother for her deception. He's just worried about getting caught. But notice Rebecca. Notice how wily she is as she calms his fears about being cursed. She said she'd be willing to take the curse upon herself, which shows the lengths that she was willing to go. It's interesting, as we'll see later, if the blessing could not be taken away from Jacob and given to Esau, then most surely the curse could not be taken away from Jacob and given to Rebecca. She was manipulating Jacob in order to get him to participate in her scheme, which was to get him the blessing. And, of course, Jacob does not need a lot of coercion because he just goes and obeys his mother's commands. We continue to see that Rebecca had it all played out, planned out. <clears throat> she takes Esau's best clothes, puts them on Jacob. She also covered his smooth hands and neck with the goat skins. And after preparing the meal and dressing Jacob up to look, smell, and feel like Esau, Rebecca gave him the food and the bread, take to Isaac throughout this story Rebecca seemed so sure that she could pull off this deception she probably felt that the ends Jacob getting the blessing like God wanted justified the means which was a deception the third point of our our story this morning is Jacob and, and, and Isaac and it's found in verses 18 to 29 follow along as I read those words Again, this is what God's word says. Then he came to his father and said, "My father." And he said, "Here I am." "Who are you, my son?" Jacob said to his father, "I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Come now, sit and eat of my game so that you may bless me." Isaac said to his son, "How is it that you have how is it that you have it so quickly?" And he said, because the Lord your God made it come to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come close so I may feel you, my son, whether you are are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to his father Isaac, and he touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him and he ate. He also brought him wine and he drank. Then his father said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of the heaven and the fatness of the earth and abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you And blessed be those who bless you. Jacob is now in full deception mode. He takes the meal to his father, but he almost blows the plan right off the bat. In trying to cover all the bases, sight, smell, taste, and touch, they forget about his hearing. When we lose one of our senses, usually the other senses are heightened. And when Jacob announced he was there, Isaac was immediately confused. He was expecting Esau, but the voice sounded like Jacob. So what does Jacob do? What would we do? We'd probably babble on and on, trying to cover up the lie, hoping the person doesn't notice our deception. And that's exactly, exactly what Jacob does, is he lies and he rushes Isaac. He's like, sit up, eat the game, you know, bless me. But Isaac wants to know how his son hunted, killed and prepared it so quickly. And again, this reminds me of the phrase I started with. Oh, in a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And Rebecca probably thought her plan was foolproof, but she had forgotten a couple things. One, she forgot Jacob's voice. And two, she prepared the food too quickly. Now, Isaac may have been blind, but he wasn't stupid. Esau had hunted, killed, and prepared this food for him so many times that Isaac probably had a good idea of how long it might take. Now, Jacob has to come up with a good answer for his father. So, of course, what does he do? He tells another lie. This lie, the Lord your God made it come to me, shows his spiritual condition. Jacob blasphemes by invoking the name of the Lord, but his answer also suggests that Jacob saw the Lord as Isaac's God and not his own. Jacob was having to weave a dangerous, tangled web in order to get Isaac to believe that he was Esau. Isaac's still not convinced. He wants Jacob to come near so he can touch him. Isaac thought that even though the voice seemed wrong, the skin would prove who it really was. But even after touching Isaac, he was still confused and didn't recognize him. So Isaac asked him one more time if he really was his son. And Jacob continued his deception by outright lying to his father. He has now lied three times in the presence of his father Isaac, in the presence of God. We notice how conflicted Isaac was. But you know what? All he had to do was call a witness. All he had to do was call a witness when he could not confirm whether Esau or Jacob was there. But his hands were tied by his own deceptions. Now, Isaac, seemingly convinced, or maybe just hungry, had Jacob bring the game so he could eat it and give him his blessing. Jacob also brought him some wine, which may have been to dull Isaac's senses even more. Then Isaac tried one more thing in order to know that he was really in the presence of Esau. He asked Jacob to come and kiss him. Jacob kisses him, and when his father caught Esau's smell, he immediately blessed him. Isaac had been betrayed and deceived by Rebecca and Jacob, but he'd also been betrayed and deceived by his own senses. His sight was already dulled. He allowed his hearing to be deceived, even though he was skeptical, skeptical at first. He was deceived by Jacob's touch. He was deceived by the smell of Esau's clothes. And lastly, he was even deceived by his taste buds. I, I don't eat venison much but he'd probably eaten tons of game and venison, but he was now deceived by a goat meat dish. Is that normal? I've heard people say no. People who are hunters would know the difference and who who have eaten it would know the difference. But he was deceived by the goat meat dish that Rebecca had prepared. The smell of who Isaac thought was Esau prompted him to begin the blessing that was specifically suited for Esau. The smell of his clothing reminded Isaac of the fields where Esau spent his days and where he saw God's blessing on him. The open fields now became a place of blessing and plenty, not just merely a place to live. The blessing unfolded in three parts. The first part was generous in its scope, mentioning the heaven's dew and the earth's fatness, which expressed the entirety of nature's abundance. The heaven's dew was essential to vegetation and farming in the land of Canaan and the fatness of, of the earth meant prosperity. The Prosperity of the land was further, further spelled out as having an abundance of grain and new wine. Now Hamilton says, the God of Jacob will provide Jacob with all the ingredients of fertility that were thought to be given by the Canaanite gods, heaven, earth, Dagon, and Tirosh." we should notice that these would have been seen as blessings for a settled farmer, not necessarily that of a nomadic hunter. We should not be surprised that the blessing is more suited to Jacob than Esau, looking forward to the settling of the promised land. The second part of the blessing had to do with peoples serving Jacob and and nations and brothers bowing down to him. To bow down meant they would serve him and show him honor he would be their master. This part of the blessing fulfilled the oracle that God spoke to Rebecca during her pregnancy. And the last part of the blessing reiterated the blessing of protection and favor that God first gave to Abraham. That those who would curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. The order of the blessing is logical and that the blessing of prosperous land foresees a flourishing nation that will make servants of rival and even brother nations. So Jacob received the blessing just as God sovereignly ordained that Isaac intended for Esau. It was so far reaching that it would have left nothing for Jacob. Isaac intended to bless Esau in such an enormous fashion that it would have left nothing of importance for Jacob. Briscoe says this, there is one profound factor which must not be overlooked, and that is the sovereign Lord was still at work despite the scheming and conniving. Despite all the efforts of man to thwart the purposes of God through all manner of mistakes and misdemeanors, Jacob, who God had said would be the next link in the chain of divine promise, had arrived in that exact position. You know, the lesson behind all this is that God delights to have his men and women work in glad cooperation with him. But should they freely choose not to cooperate, they will eventually discover that God works despite their having chosen not to allow him to work with them. And that brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card. My next step is to freely choose to work in glad cooperation with God in fulfilling his will and plans for my life in the world. Now, I would be remiss to not address the deceptions in this passage. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We must watch over or guard our hearts with all diligence in order to keep from wanting to deceive others. Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob had spent a lifetime not guarding and watching over their hearts. They were not diligent. They let preferential treatment run rampant in their home, and they cultivated a lifestyle of deception and taking advantage of each other. That brings us to our second next step this morning, which is this. To guard my heart with all diligence in order to keep from deceiving my fellow human beings and God. I want to close with this story. It's called Successful Swindlers from Walton's Commentary. The joke is told of a deacon whose property adjoined that of a golf course. One Sunday morning, he decided to skip church and take in some golf. He slipped over the fence onto the third fairway and began to play. As in the case of Job, Satan was standing before God and asked what God intended to do to punish the deacon's dishonesty. Just wait and see what happens on the fifth hole, God says. As he smiled. The fifth hole was the most difficult on the course and often was responsible for scuttling the hopes for a good game. On this particular Sunday morning, however, the deacon, whose handicap was a barely mediocre 33, drove the ball straight and true. Not only did it find the green, but it took the curve of the terrain and went right in the cup, a hole in one. Satan was aghast. Why have you rewarded this unconscionable conduct with such remarkable success? It looks like success now, God replied, but who's he gonna tell? When we read this story about sinful Jacob and hear about the successes of sinful people in our day and age, we may be inclined to ask, How can God allow allow these connivers to succeed? From Jacob's story, we can see that God at times allows success in sin because he has a greater lesson to teach someone at a later time. God's timing is strategic. None of us experience immediate response from God every time we sin. Rather, at the proper time, God brings our sin to our attention and brings the full fruit of consequences into our lives. That inevitably means that sin has the capability of bringing temporary success. God in his impeccable sovereignty will bring each sin to light and fruit so as to serve his optimum purposes in our lives and in his plan. He did so with, he did so with Jacob, and he will do so in our lives as well. The success from sin is short-lived. As the praise team comes to lead us on a final song, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I, am, I for one am truly thankful that you still, use human sinful, you still use sinful human beings today to do your work in this world. I pray that each of us would fr- freely choose to work in glad cooperation with you And fulfilling your plans for our lives and the world. I also pray that you would guard our hearts with all diligence so that we would not give the devil a foothold in our lives. Help us to strive to be more like your son Jesus every day and to hide your word in our hearts so that we may not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen.